guys, we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, I'll start with some introductions, give some uh, people some more time to log in. Uh, we'll go ahead and start with our CIT Echo Hub. Uh, first, I'll go ahead and start with um, Kimberly McManus. Hi, Kim. Hi, everybody. I'm Kim McManus. I am the CIT Echo Project Coordinator. Next, we have uh, Chief Detective Lawrence Savage, who's giving himself another um, update, right? Another title to his name before he retires. Yeah, and next week it'll probably be like, I don't know, vice president or something, but uh, Detective Lawrence Savage, APD. Uh, next, we have Detective Mike Shirillo from APD CIU. Hi, everyone. Mike Shirillo. Uh, we also have Robert Garnan from APD CIU. Hi, guys. Rob Garnan, CIU. Looks like we have a Detective Cassandra Bailey, who's going to be um, talking on her case. I'll give some more info in a minute. Hi, Detective Bailey. Uh, next, I have uh, Detective David Padilla from APDCIU. Detective Padilla, APDCIU. We also have Detective Mark LeClaire from APDCIU. Hey, everybody. Detective LeClaire, APDCIU detective. We have clinician Mike Lucero with APDCIU. Hi, everybody. Mike Lucero, APD clinician. Thanks for coming today, Mike. We also have, let's see who else we have. We have Dr. Alex Cool. It's been a while since we've seen you. Thanks for coming today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Good to see everyone. Um, I'm with UNM. I work with Dr. James Fairfax Colombo. And I'll save the best for last, Dr. Colombo. Um, we also have Lieutenant Pete Gubetta, uh, I believe from UNM, correct? Yes, that's correct. I'm sorry. I couldn't get my computer to work. Uh, yeah, no, great. Uh, Thank you. UNM, please. Great. Thanks for coming today. Uh, we have Dr. Niels Rosenbaum logging in. Yes, hi. I'm having trouble with my computer. Sorry, I'm a tiny bit late. No worries. We're just doing introductions. Thank you for coming. Of course. Uh, we have APD Thomas Goddard. Um, he doesn't have a mic. Thanks for coming. Um, let's see. I believe that's it. I wanted to leave uh, our guests here from Portland at the end as well. Um, it looks like Rich Bailey, officer with Portland Police, and also Chase Bryce. Bryson, Bryson, sorry, CIT coordinator with Portland. So thank you guys for coming today. Thanks for letting us join. Thank you. Great to see new people. Thank you guys for being here. And last but not least, we have our uh, doctor case present presentator today, and that's Dr. James Fairfax Colombo. Thanks for being here and doing the presentation today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And um, so like we said today, it's going to be Detective Cassandra Bailey. She's going to be talking about a case. Normally, we do a case presentation for 
um, our group today is to give recommendations um, about a case, but actually today we're going to switch it up a little bit. Uh, Detective Bailey is actually going to give an outcome from one of the old cases that we presented before in the past and um, show us the success that we've had uh, within our hub group. So we're really excited to hear about successes, especially um, from you guys giving recommendations. So I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to um, Detective Bailey. Hello, Detective Bailey, APD CIU. Um, I'm just going to start off by saying, forgive me, I haven't presented one like this before. So if I stumble around with my words a little bit, just forgive me in advance. Um, but uh, back in June of 2020, um, I received a case of a 28-year-old male. Um, it was the first time he had come across um, our radar at all, and it was from the field services uh, unit. Um, actually, at the time he came uh, to my attention, he was already in custody at the jail. Um, uh, in a very short amount of time, he had picked up a lot of criminal charges, um, which indicated to me that he was obviously um, escalating in behaviors for some reason. Um, unbeknownst to us, um, because initially the parents weren't very forthcoming um, with his diagnosis. They claimed actually not to even know if he had one. Um, they just basically, I think they were being protective, um, you know, and understandably so they were his parents, but um, they did say stuff like he's never had friends. He's very to himself. Um, and then coincidentally, when we got one of the diagnoses has antisocial personality disorder that kind of explained a lot of the stuff that they gave us. But uh, he was in jail for aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, um, which was the deadly weapon was his vehicle um, and resisting police. He had felony criminal damage to property on his neighbors. So essentially he was just wreaking havoc in his neighborhood um, and his vehicle was his his weapon, his vehicle was his um, haven. Uh, we couldn't gain access to him because he would get in his car back out of his driveway and take off. Um, so he was really hard to gain access to. We were, he, he does not trust law enforcement. Apparently his parents said in Colorado or something, I think he had had a bad experience with the law enforcement at one point. Um, so we were, uh, Detective Padilla and I worked together diligently to get him to agree to meet with us. Um, we, his parents came along as kind of a buffer uh, since he didn't feel safe. Um, we met in a public place. Um, and as soon as he saw us, he bolted out the back door. And I spent over an hour on the phone with him. And to no avail, he didn't uh, end up meeting with us and his parents were just beside themselves um, based on all the complaints they were getting from their neighborhood, their neighborhood association. They had gotten their, um, the city councilor involved. Um, uh, they were basically in fear of losing their house because of all the issues he was causing with the neighbors. They didn't feel safe. They thought he was gonna kill someone. He was driving his brand new, I think it was like a 2016 model Mustang. 
at high rates of speed through neighborhoods. And um, so as parents were really excited about this meeting that we had planned, try to get him some help. And then he bolts out the back door. And um, so again, we were back to, you know, uh, we didn't even have a plan B at that point. So we were back to the drawing board. Um, and we tried, uh, Detective Pity and I tried several times to even just go sit at his house and wait around the corner and see if he would drive up so we could just try to catch him off guard. A um, couple of times he uh, noticed our vehicles and he bolted. He wouldn't pull into his own driveway. So we knew that wasn't an option. Um, so we worked with his parents to finally gain access to him just to build a rapport with him and see that there's nothing to be afraid of. We're here to help you. We're not here to take you to jail. Um, so his parents and Detective Pity and I devised a plan that, you know, um, we would just kind of mosey on up while they were at lunch one day. And we did. And um, he was scared, but we were able to, um, with the help of a good majority of the detectives on this unit, um, we were able to safely get him into custody, into protective custody, and we were able to get him to the hospital. Um, and that's right around the time um, we were really starting to learn a lot about the AOT program, the assisted outpatient treatment program through the courts and, um, and Hope Works. Uh, so it was my first assisted outpatient treatment um, referral that I had ever done. And I was very skeptical because um, it was new and, you know, a lot of programs, you know, seem to fall through for one reason or another, and it's kind of discouraging. Um, but I did it, and um, the staff over at Hope Hope Works through the AOT program are amazing. Um, Jonathan, uh, sorry, the subject is just one of the many that that have they've really helped me out with. Um, so. We got him, um, I did the referral, his parents agreed to be the petitioners because law enforcement is a lot not allowed to be the petitioner as is the case with a lot of these programs. So luckily his parents um, agreed, they were the petitioner, I did all the paperwork. Uh, we worked with the uh, AOT program and that was in, uh, he, I got this case in June of 2020 um, by September of 2020, um, after several failed attempts, after several meetings with his, uh, the clinicians and his neighborhood associations and several emails, the AOT program was able to get him screened. They were able to get him approved through the Judge Brickhouse, I believe, and for the program. And literally since he has been with the AOT program, we have had, we've heard nothing, hide nor hair from him, um, no issues, um, no calls for service, uh, no criminal charges. He hasn't been to jail or the hospital. Um, and of course, you know, before closing out his, his case, wanting to make sure he's, you know, stable and he's doing well, I, I did email the AOT um, administrative assistant and um, one of their senior uh, program managers to just make sure how, hey, how's, how is he doing? 
um, before we decide how we're going to move forward. Um, and uh, she said, um, it appears that he has been engaging and there have not been any aggressive or threatening behaviors. So far, he's been very pleasant and cooperative. Um, so um, that and that was in October of 2020. And here we are in February of 2021. And I before I presented this case, I did just go back and make sure has anything else happened and we just haven't heard about it. And there's nothing. And I know um, not only his family, who he was um, known for sending threatening messages to mom, dad, aunts, uncles. Um, I know his family is very grateful, but even more so, I know his neighborhood is extremely grateful. Um, we were really concerned somebody could have been killed. Um, not because he would have intentionally killed someone, but because of his aggressive driving um, that you know, a little kid playing in the front yard and, you know, he loses control of his Mustang. And so I know there's a lot of people that are very happy, happy about this outcome. And um, this is just one example, one of many examples of how the AOT program, which is again, fairly new to us, um, has really helped me with, um, with my caseload anyway. That was an amazing story. Thank you, Detective Bailey. Um, does anybody from the network have any questions or comments for Detective Bailey? I have a question. Could you tell the group what other diagnoses other than um, antisocial? Yes, yes. Um, so um, it was a clinical uh, diagnosis that we had been able to obtain and uh, he was bipolar disorder and antisocial personality disorder. <laughs> Because my understanding is that they won't take antisocial alone. Is that correct? That That's what I have heard. I, I believe clinician uh, Lucero and I, we were talking about it in the office one day, and, and I believe he had said the same. And they are, from my understanding, um, people are seem to be reluctant to diagnose personality disorders in general. Yeah, that is true. Because it's a it sticks to people, and sometimes... It, the diagnosis is wrong so you have to be pretty certain in order to give a diagnosis like that because it, it can exclude people from a lot of clinical care and services and it was it, and now that you mentioned that based on the fact that we were working with him and, and he was his behaviors were escalating very quickly and they were very serious and it was kind of frustrating because there was no you know, diagnosis, but there was obviously something going on there. And so the fact that our team was able to work together collectively to come up with a plan to get him to the hospital. And I think, I don't think he minded going to the hospital. I think when he just saw police, he automatically thought jail. And so um, it, it really worked out that we were able to get him to the hospital. He was in there for quite some time and get that diagnosis. And, and then because AOT won't uh, take part of their screening processes, you have to have a diagnosis. So I wasn't able to get him approved through AOT until we had a diagnosis, so. It's a great case though. And it also shows that, you know, you can have more than one. You can legitimately have a, personality disorder and a major mental illness. And that's something to keep in mind because often people see just the personality disorder and they dismiss bipolar. 
which frequently happens. And then they don't get treated with mood stabilizers. They don't get better. They end up in jail, still being manic, still being depressed. And they may be antisocial or borderline, but it's still, it makes things much, much worse. So excellent job. They did tell me that he was, um, after we had got him to the hospital, that they did get, get, he is on a long acting injectable. And so it seems like based on everything else and the outcome, it seems like it's working well for him. Great, thank you. Any more questions? Oh, yes. Yeah, this is Alex with you and them. One of the things I'm curious about is the thing with mania and antisocial personality disorder, they're both consistent, they're externalizing. So it sounds like the mood stabilizer is helping him. So I'm kind of curious how his presentation really differs when he's manic um, and there's just like psychotic features involved um, compared to when he's like stabilized or if he has the depressed pole. Because that kind of information, you know, depending on what their mood is at the time, would indicate different kind of intervention with that individual. Um, I'm I'm glad you brought that up because maybe um, it might, you know, behoove me to reach out to his family um, and just see how hey how how are things going, um, and you know maybe now that he is or if he is or I assume he is stabilized how he might react to, you know, even just a telephone conversation with me. Yeah, Detective, that's a great idea to, to meet him while he's doing well. And there's a chance that he was misdiagnosed with the personality disorder uh, because maybe he's now not doing bad things or not having empathy or not caring. He might've just been manic out of his mind. So it, it's a great thing for, for you to see if that's the case. Either way, whether he still is, is uh, antisocial and to see what are the core aspects of that. And if he is antisocial, he'll be back. That is a good point. I'm, I will definitely do that this week. Great, thank you. Any more questions or comments for Detective Bailey? Um, this is James from UNM. I, I have a generalized question about AOT, not necessarily just for Detective Bailey, but for sort of all the officers. Um, because I have heard, at least in New Mexico, that sometimes AOT, like it's like there's some practical impediments. So like Detective Bailey was saying, like you have to have a family member or someone who's not an officer petition, um, often like not knowing how to escalate up if, if somebody is doing poorly in there or um, particularly for individuals with criminal charges, you know, like um, sort of how AOT works as a mechanism for them and whether or not the, you know, how the DA is involved. So I was sort of interested in how now that AOT has come online how it's worked out for you guys and has it been a useful tool? And are you findings, like what are the practical impediments that you're sort of noticing that are, that might make it And also for anybody who is not from New Mexico, can someone explain AOT? Okay, so the, the AOT is, it's an assisted outpatient treatment program through the courts, through a Metro court, is that right, Shannon? Um, I yes, have a pamphlet here. Um, yeah, and it is overseen by a district court judge. Um, and there are requirements um, for somebody to qualify for this program. And, and one has to be a diagnosed um, uh, behavioral health illness. But um, they, also, it, they also have to be... Um, not have to be, I, for lack of a better term, um, they're in the jail system. So it, it's 
it's kind of a almost like a um the, i was going to say the act team like a case management wraparound services but it's it's managed through not only hope works which um you know deals with the behavioral health community mainly but also through the courts so ultimately you have to have a petitioner um which cannot so one of the difficulties with the aot program is um like for instance recently um i have a female who um is in dire need of case at minimum case management um but she um she's very very severely mentally ill she self-diagnoses on um on drugs uh but she makes too much money in ssdi to qualify for housing um and we're kind of doing some research right now, but she didn't really even qualify for case management because she has Medicare, not Medicaid. But we are learning that there are some ver some places that we may be able to get in her into where help her find housing. She has enough money, but um, she's another one that I'm trying to get into the AOT program because she's getting arrested a lot, um, but she's just severely ill and needs hospital more than jail. Um, but I wasn't, I couldn't find, her family doesn't want anything to do with her. They're scared of her. She threatens to kill them. And uh, they want her to get help, but they don't want anything to do with her. So I was having difficulty finding a petitioner. Um, it took me a few phone calls and emails to get the mom to agree to be the petitioner. Um, so that's, that is one of the only difficulties I've come across with AOT is what if you have somebody who's experiencing homelessness and they don't have family like my uncle for instance when he was in california we didn't know where he was and he was homeless you know if he was somebody that was in need of something like that they wouldn't have been able to find anybody a, a, a roommate a family member anybody to be a petitioner so you know i can see us running across that that problem um you know in the future but um, thus far, um, it's it's been a great help with some of, you know, some of my consumers who are in dire need of help and they're uh, going to jail a lot. I don't know. Did that? Did I just talk around in circles, or did that help at all? <laughs> no, I think that really helps, and I think it's. Um... So one, it speaks to one of the challenges of like, just because someone pops up in the legal system doesn't mean that they can get into AOT if they don't have those other individuals who can petition. Um, and it also, I think it's a testament to the, you know, the work that CIT, like the CIT detectives do is like having to canvas in the community and get family members on board and say, hey, like you really have somebody who you care about who needs treatment, like please petition because I can't do anything unless you do. So, um, it was one of the things that I've heard about some of the practical impediments of it. Um, and that seems like one of them. So I think it's like a major, it's a major undertaking, I think for you guys to, but like it shows the great, the greatness of the work that you do is to, to get these family members on board and, and really interface with the community. So I, I appreciate that so much. We were thinking about that for a, um, a program that we want to bring online and it doesn't make sense to do it through AOT. It's going to probably have to be through diversion for that exact same reason that you sort of just mentioned. Yeah. And I know Detective Mieta has brought up a couple of times the LEAD program. Um, and I know it's similar, it sounds similar 
although I haven't come across it just yet. I'm just a matter of, not a matter of if, a matter of when. Yeah, great, and great explanation. You did a great job. Um, does anybody else have questions or any comments about the case or anything for Detective Bailey? Going once, going twice. Okay, great. Thank you, um, Detective Bailey. Again, um, this goes for our entire network. If anybody has a case presentation that they would like to um, bring to the group, please let us know. Just reach out to any of the hub members or to Kimberly and we can get that um, situated for you guys. And also like Detective Bailey presented today, thank you again. Um, we do love hearing the, the great outcomes that come along, um, especially the case presentations that we do here. So again, thanks for sharing uh, Detective Bailey. And that does go hand in hand with our presentation today, which is therapeutic jurisprudence. I've been trying to practice it, um, Dr. Fairfax Colombo, but I just can't say it 10 times fast, but um, it does go hand in hand. So again, thank you, Detective Bailey. And with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Dr. Fairfax Colombo. So I'm James Fairfax Colombo. I'm an assistant professor at UNM. I'm a, um, I got my training at Drexel uh, University, so I have a, a law degree and a, a PhD in clinical psychology. I'm not a practicing attorney. I really just am interested in sort of the policy piece and the doors that the law degree opens, um, and also sort of the exposure to concepts like this, therapeutic jurisprudence. I mean, it's, it's a mouthful. Um, I feel, I feel like the law always has these Latin terms that they are forcing you to pronounce instead of just using regular language like we would all prefer them to do. Um, but it's really the topic that got me interested in, in um, forensic psychology. And it was sort of the idea of, of my first exposure was drug courts and sort of the, um, you know, the benefit the drug court can play for people. Specifically, I was working at a substance abuse treatment research organization and we were observing a lot of different treatment groups and almost everybody who was in there was a drug court participant. Um, and it sort of got me thinking about, you know, we have this revolving door of people coming in and out of the criminal justice system. And like, what aren't we giving them to prevent them from coming back? Because I've always been somebody who was like, okay, if you break the law, like there's a penalty for it, but I don't want to see you back again. And that was one of the things that got me interested in recidivism reduction was in, in, high, in uh, college, I was working in the, my local DA's office. Um, I'm from rural Pennsylvania. And I would just see the same people every, like I worked there for two summers and two winters. And there were people who I would see every time I was in there. And it was usually drug and alcohol problems. So um, that's really sort of what got me interested in, in that idea. And how can we use the legal system to sort of help people lead better lives? So I'm gonna share my screen. I want this to be sort of an interactive presentation. I'll be asking some questions. I want your feedback on certain things. And um, there's some sort of vignettes to go through, I think. If you come from a public safety background, any of these sort of diversion programs where somebody is being treated in the community bring sort of a unique perspective in terms of, well, hey, like what, like what type of people might be successful in this program? And the quickest thing that derails a program is having some really bad press. So having some people in there who maybe weren't a great fit, who um, recidivate maybe in, in violent ways, and then the community is not on board with the program anymore. Um, so we'll go through some sort of vignettes and you can tell me things that pop out at you and whether or not you think this person would be a good fit for this type of um, diversion process. So I'm gonna share my screen now. Because I'll, when I share my screen, I won't be able to see people. Just um, as I sort of ask questions, just feel free to unmute yourself and, and just call out. Um,
Okay. So can everyone see that PowerPoint? Okay, perfect. Um, so starting off, I, there's no conflict, conflict of interest to disclaim. I'm not getting paid to give this talk. And I'm not involved in a therapeutic jurisprudence organization that's paying me to go out and spread the word. It's just a topic I feel passionate about. Um, you'll see that I've included cartoons and little funny things again to sort of keep the mood light. Um, so when some things look tongue in cheek, it's, that's what the internet popped up. Um, so I thought this was, this was uh, sort of funny, it's a funny monopoly. So learning objectives, I just wanna introduce the idea of therapeutic jurisprudence. I wanna give some common examples of how this is employed. Um, some of them are gonna to apply to New Mexico, some of them might not. Um, and then at the end, I sort of wanna discuss your perceptions of how um, this approach is employed in New Mexico, if you think it's beneficial, and sort of what barriers you've, you've encountered. Um, you know, with getting people into some of these programs or some of the considerations you make when you're, um, when you're deciding if you're gonna do an arrest or not and sort of like what, what you see down the line. Um, you know, I've talked to a lot of people who sort of say like, look, I arrested this person, but it's because I wanted them into treatment and like there was no other way to get them there. Um, <clears throat> so starting as sort of a group exercise. So, you know, thinking of discretion broadly, it's the choice in how you wanna handle a case. So all across the criminal justice spectrum from officers through judges and district attorneys, there's some exercise of discretion, right? Some exercise of choice. And so one of the first things I wanted to ask you guys was when you're approaching a situation where an arrest could be warranted, how do you decide what the best course of action is? So um, Detective Bailey was mentioning lead, you know, so lead is lost, law enforcement assisted diversion. So people will, in lieu of an arrest, hey, I'm taking you to this uh, crisis triage center or this substance abuse place. So when you are approaching a case, what are the things that you're thinking about when you're deciding, hey, I really need to arrest this person and we'll deal with them down the line with their behavioral health issues or who might be more appropriate for sort of an on the spot thing, like I'm taking them to UNM, I'm taking them wherever. So just sort of call out with some of the things that, are, that come to mind when you encounter somebody um, and you're deciding if an arrest is, an appro is appropriate or some type of on-the-spot diversion. Lawrence Saavedra with APD. I, I, uh, the first thing I will look at is to see if um, I believe that um, their mental health is driving their behaviors. So, you know, uh, for example, maybe somebody that um, is living with schizophrenia and they only feel safe sitting underneath the criminal trespass sign that they've been sitting there for the past two or three weeks and they just feel safer there. You'll also have to look to see what kind of history they have if they're violent when they go to the hospital. Um, in that case, then they might be best served to be taken to jail and um, opened up to PSU there. Um, but generally you wanna see, is, it, is the driving force behind that their mental health or is it just uh, criminality? And you got some comments, um, history, severity of the crime. Um, I put who the victims are as well as severity of the crime. Um, Officer Severe, thank, thank you for the, um, and anyone who put it in the chat, thank you. Those are all, I think those are great considerations and really things that I think about um, from a law enforcement perspective is exactly what you said. So is there, what's driving this? Is it mental health? And, and this is when Dr. Rosenbaum was talking about um, personality disorders versus mental health, right? Like they can co-occur, they can co-occur and somebody might look really psychotic and then you treat them and all of a sudden you're seeing the antisocial stuff come out. 
So figuring out what's driving this, right? Somebody who this is just a mental health issue, like maybe we don't need to introduce them formally to the justice system. Maybe let's get them on mental health radar right away and see if that helps instead. Um, and somebody mentioned severity of the crime. That's always something that I think about, right? It speaks to public safety, um, sort of stabilization of mental health symptoms. Like, is this a, for instance, is this somebody who's also under the influence of, of meth? And like, is this a person who I could get to a crisis treatment center and be um, confident that they're not gonna be violent and be confident that everyone else is gonna be safe? Sometimes you just need people to dry out a little bit while they're um, in detention. And one of the main points of this talk is sort of gonna be, we can divert people at all these different um, time points. So just because somebody gets arrested doesn't mean they're not gonna get the help that they need if we have certain things in place. Um, also figuring out how to screen people for who, who really needs this help um, and who sort of maybe is, you know, there's always people trying to game the system. So sort of how do you, um, how do you divert the people who really need it, but stay away from the people who maybe are just trying to get a little bit of a, you know, a, a lighter um, penalty. Um, <clears throat> So we, we talked a little bit about this, you know, what makes a crisis center a better alternative? What about an informal interaction where you just sort of let somebody off with the warning or just sort of, hey, you know, um, you know let's, let's move on from here. Um, and these are things that we do in our everyday life, right? So like, hey, like, you know, they, they don't want you standing out in front of the store. So, you know, like the longer you stay there, the more likely it is that a customer is going to complain and maybe you get arrested. Um, but a lot of those are sort of informal interactions, right? You know, like, somebody clears the area, they come back, there's no, you know, there's no arrest that happens just because someone is necessarily experiencing mental health issues. So we have a lot of discretion in the criminal justice system. So you can do it at the arrest level, right? So diversion prior to arrests, such as a lead program. Um, we do this at the bail and pretrial release levels, right? So this is a, a judge's decision. Hey, is this somebody who could be in the community and what do they need to be able to be in the community safely? We have discretion with plea bargains, right? There's no constitutional right to a plea bargain. The um, prosecutor gets to decide if they want to offer something. Um, even if they offer something and it's accepted, the judge doesn't have to abide by it. Um, so there's, you know, there's discretion there. Various diversionary options. Are we going to offer somebody a diversion program? Are there somebody who we think is going to be a good fit? And then sentencing, right? You know, the judges ha have some discretion within certain guidelines of I'm sentencing you to the upper end or the lower end, and, and, and here is why. So all level, um, at all levels of the criminal justice system, we have some discretion. Now, therapeutic jurisprudence is sort of the idea that we can use that discretion in the criminal justice system for the benefit of other people. Um, you know, I, I, I tend to find that most people who are doing any type of public service, whether it's law enforcement, firefighters, mental health workers, they have a compassion for other people. They wanna make sure people are safe and living you know, productive lives. Um, so there is this sort of compassion if you're in any type of helping or service uh, profession where you wanna use your discretion to help other people get to where they need to go. Therapeutic jurisprudence is interdisciplinary in nature. So it's a collaboration of legal professionals, medical professionals, social scientists, a bunch of people all working together to try to help move an individual towards some type of desired outcome. Um, and sort of most uh, literally, it's the study of the role of law as a therapeutic agent. So how do we use the law to sort of help get people into treatment and help get them the things that maybe they weren't getting before? Um, for various reasons, right? Maybe they didn't have appropriate resources and the only way they get on the radar is if they get arrested or maybe they're just not motivated to do it and they need an external motivator like the threat of legal sanctions. Um, and this is sort of most evident in the sequential intercept model, which I think I'm gonna be talking about um, 
the next time I present. And there's a whole bunch of intercepts that you can intervene on. So there's the arrest level or the community level. There's, you know, once people are initially detained, there's the specialty courts and um, diversionary programs. There's reentry programs if somebody has been incarcerated. Um, and also at the community level, when somebody is sentenced on the probation or parole level. So that whole idea, generally, the community release where you're checking in with a probation officer and you have to comply with conditions, that in itself is sort of therapeutic jurisprudence. So it's, it's something that people are dealing with a lot. We just don't usually use a formal term for it. So if you're thinking about this at the post-arrest level, so you made the decision, hey, I got to actually bring this person in instead of divert them to a crisis center um, or some type of lead program right away. We're thinking about sort of three things. So there's pretrial release, um, specialty courts, and I'll talk a little bit about drug courts, which is um, sort of the most common specialty court, and then conditional release. Now, I don't think we have this in New Mexico. Um, we have this in some other states. It's uh, mainly used for sort of insanity equities, um, but it's something that I, I want to talk about just sort of as an example of like, hey, even when somebody's case has been disposed of, like we can still use the law as an agent for therapeutic change. So when I, when I think about pretrial release in New Mexico, so the purpose of bail right? So that's what pretrial release is. How do we ensure that this person shows up for the rest of their court uh, process? And that's the purpose of bail, really, is to ensure an appearance in court. Now, there are a bunch of things the court wants to consider when they're deciding, how do we have somebody in the community? What do we need to give them to ensure that they continue to go through the rest of this process? So you're thinking about things that might impact public safety, the nature of the offense charged, the weight of the evidence. So, you know, you don't want somebody who, um, was caught on video, maybe and get you know get engaging in an alleged murder like that person. Maybe you don't want to grant community release to. You want to keep that person um, in jail and have them go through the process, but not give a chance for community release where they might try to you know skip town. History of and characteristics of the defendant. Right? Is this somebody who every time they're arrested they stay in town and you don't really have any issues with them and they sort of go through the process? Um, is this somebody who has a lot of violent charges and you're sort of concerned that if we leave them in the community? escalate, um, whether they're currently on probation and parole, so are they, are they even able to um, adhere to the conditions that are already there? What level of danger do they pose to the community? Um, various factors that might contribute to non-appearance. So like things that you tend to think about are, does somebody have a lot of money where they could very easily, you know, go to another country, fly across, you know, fly across um, the U.S. to a different state, um, sort of disappear from the jurisdiction? But in New Mexico law provides a whole host of non-monetary conditions that you can consider. So you might keep somebody in custody except for things like the ability to go to work or go to school, right? We don't want to disrupt your life too much while you're going through this process. So we're going to allow you to do certain things in the community. Sometimes there's a no contact provision with a victim. Um, you might have them under sort of pretrial supervision. They're checking in with probation and parole. Maybe you put them on a curfew. There could be a firearm restriction for public safety purposes. You might require them to be um, to hold the job or be in an educational program. But then there's a whole bunch of conditions that are treatment related. And so I always think about this as, hey, like we really should be using bail as a way to sort of get people into treatment, right? Hey, if you don't want to be held in jail, that's totally fine. Like we recognize you have this thing going on. So go to treatment, right? In lieu of, um, in lieu of being detained, we want you to go to treatment. So common things are no use of drugs or alcohol, submitting to drug and alcohol tests, like common probation or community supervision conditions. And then the specific language in New Mexico is you can be um, ordered to undergo available medical, psychological, or psychiatric treatment, including treatment for drug or alcohol dependency, 
and remain in a specified institution for that purpose, right? So it might be saying, hey, we're not going to detain you, but you need to go to this inpatient facility. Or, hey, we're not going to detain you, but you have to go to outpatient three times a week. And so it's, it's leaving some choice, right? If they don't want to do that, then they can be detained. But it's another, it's a mechanism where because people don't want to be sanctioned, they're going to, they might comply with these conditions that are hopefully going to address some of their behavioral health issues that led to them offending in the first place. And then there's some language that, you know, any other um, condition that allows for the safety of, of the self and the public. So that's before someone's even had a conviction, right? Is this idea of how do we, how can we use bail to help people get into treatment? <clears throat> so I want to go through a quick vignette. And so just sort of unmute yourselves and call out with your thoughts on this. So let's say that Bill just went through a difficult divorce and he and his spouse had been fighting for years and it was sometimes escalating to physical fighting. He was the aggressor in these incidents, having once pushed his wife into a wall and on another occasion, uh, sort of essentially throwing her out of the house and locking the door behind her. Now, during these divorce proceedings, Bill argued for shared custody of his children. He provided evidence to the judge that he had been attending counseling for anger management for the past month. Um, he was, though he was arguing for shared custody of his children, he'd only been granted supervised visitation. And the judge essentially told Bill, you know, I'm happy that you're attending anger management treatment, but I think you need a little bit more. So Bill's extremely disappointed by this result. He really wants shared custody of his kids. Though he had been sober for roughly five years, he went to a local bar, drank 10 beers and relapsed and attempted to drive home. When he gets pulled over for blowing a stop sign, um, there's officers perform field sobriety tests and he becomes combative. So if Bill gets arrested for, you know, um, you know, battery on a peace officer and, uh, you know, DUI or DWI, what are your thoughts on whether Bill would be somebody who might be a good candidate for pretrial release, sort of given the information that's been shared here? What are some of the things that jump out to you about this is somebody we need to detain, or maybe this is somebody we try to um, put some conditions on? Anybody can, can jump in, not, um, not necessarily just if you're law enforcement. This is Alex with UNM. I would like to know, has, is this a isolated incident or is it a pattern? So Detective Savandra was talking about that earlier, sort of for, for somebody in the chat about, you know, knowing the history of the person and, and what happens when you interact with them. So uh, Dr. Cool, I think that's a great point. Other thoughts, does Bill seem like a guy who is, um, has a predisposition for criminality? So Detective Bailey mentions the domestic violence charges that could be concerning regarding his history. It certainly seemed like something the judge was considering for the custody. Um, and, you know, particularly right after this big stressor where um, his wife gets full custody and he's relapsed to alcohol use and, and there's a domestic violence history. Maybe you're concerned about what happens if he's in the community. Does he go visit her? Any other thoughts? that he, uh, this is Detective Savage with APD, I think you'd have to screen it just a little bit more. And in fact, you'd probably have to have somebody um, ask him pretty hard questions about, um, I mean, one of the, 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 the fastest growing categories of homicide in our, in our city is homicide suicide. Um, and so since he has kids involved and um, since he's got issues with anger, I don't know that he is um, 
I, I, I think I'd um, keep the, the leverage on him um, because you just got, there's, it's not just him you have to worry about. There's family that could end up in the crosshairs. So that's my take on that. Yes, I mean, I think this is a great example when we're using our discretion and we're doing sort of a risk assessment. Look, this guy just got out of a really stressful situation. He just relapsed to alcohol use. Um, we know he has this past history of domestic violence. Like this probably isn't somebody who should um, not be under really close supervision. So whether that means detention, whether that means he's going to an inpatient facility, um, sort of in lieu of detention, it certainly sounds like he needs sort of that increased supervision for the safety of um, himself and other people. So you can see sort of like, you can, you can have somebody in detention for that. You could also have somebody in some type of inpatient program. Um, so the judge might exercise some discretion and say, like, I understand what was going on. Like, I want you in a mental health facility um, in, lieu of, um, in lieu of jail. Or he might say, look, I'm not even comfortable with you being there with how things are going right now. Like, maybe we need you in the, in the jail setting, particularly because he has this history of domestic violence. So there's a whole bunch of considerations that you can go through and some alternatives that the judge might go through and say, I think this apply, you know, you can see how different judges might see this slightly differently. Um, so thank you for participating in that. So if we're moving on, so that's sort of the idea of, of, of pretrial release, right? Can we assign people conditions that involve treatment and who's, who's uh, appropriate for those? If there wasn't a domestic violence history here, maybe this looks a little bit different, right? So important things risk assessment wise to think about, you know, who, who can be treated in the community effectively. The next idea I wanna introduce is sort of the idea of a problem solving or a specialty court. So I'll talk about this in the context of drug courts. But really what these are are special tribunals that are established to deal with specific problems. And they involve individuals who need social, mental health, or substance use treatment services. So these tend to go in sort of um, like a pre-plea or a post-plea model. So like if you complete all of these uh, requirements, the charges might get dropped or, hey, you're going to plead to your charges. And if you complete all these requirements, we're not going to impose a jail sentence on you. But we have that additional leverage, right? Either your charges remain open or you're going to serve a sentence. So examples include drug courts, mental health courts, veterans courts, and Dawn Court, which um, I know they have these in Philadelphia and in Baltimore. I'm not sure if they have it in Albuquerque, but it's essentially like a um, you know court for individuals who, who uh, work in the sex trade, right? And they also, I think, have John courts in some places. And so the idea is, look, there's a lot of things that might contribute to some of these types of offending. And maybe if we give this person treatment instead of locking them up, um, we're going to see some recidivism reductions. Um, but they're like these specialized dockets where there's eligibility criteria to get into the program. Now, the focus is sort of on a move to move from punishment to rehabilitation. So I really like what Detective Savedra said. We were sort of, okay, is this a mental health issue or is this a criminality issue? And it's one of the reasons that we try to like distinguish between does this person have schizophrenia? Does this person have antisocial personality disorder? Are they both there? When do I need to be concerned about the, the personality stuff? But it's just that recognition. There can be mental and behavioral health issues that really impact criminal justice system involvement. So the idea of drug courts, I wanna say they originated in like the 1980s. And it came from this um, recognition that drug use and crime are inextricably linked. And this is something that I always tell people is, you know, people get concerned about mental health issues. And I'll say, yeah, sometimes I'm concerned about that. But my, the number one thing that predicts violence risk is, is uh, drug and alcohol use. Um, so, and when you're thinking in any type of crime, really, it's, it's substance use. 
Now, roughly 80% of adult offenders engage in problematic substance use. That's sort of a, like an overwhelming statistic right there, that four out of five people who you come into contact with who have criminal offenses have some type of problematic substance issue. 60% of individuals test positive for some type of legal substance at their arrest. Um, drug use and criminal behavior can often be chronic and sort of relapsing. So if you think about drug-involved offenders, 91, excuse me, 95% of them are going to relapse at some point, and 60 to 80% are probably going to reoffend upon release from custody, right? So these are, again, just sort of shocking statistics. Um, we used to approach sort of drug and alcohol use through a public safety approach. So it's sort of the idea that like, look, this is a moral behavior, we need to lock people up. Um, we've also vacillated in, in using a public health approach, like, oh, no, no, this is a, a mental health condition, a behavioral health condition, and what people really need is treatment. And I think what United States policy has found is that neither one of those at the exclusion of the other really works for a few different reasons. So number one, absent any type of treatment, incarceration alone fails to reduce drug use and recidivism, right? And even if there might be some treatment in jail, it doesn't tend to be um, really high quality treatment. And so you might say, okay, well, if, uh, if incarcerating people doesn't work, then we should really be treating them. Well, that doesn't work so well either, right? Because treatment is only useful when individuals attend to treatment and remain in treatment for substance use. And if you look at some of these statistics, again, they're kind of shocking. 80% of people drop out before one year, right? We usually think of the one year mark as if you can get to one year of sobriety and treatment, you usually have better outcomes. But four out of five people are gonna drop out within a year. Two out of five people are gonna drop out within three months and half of people don't even go to their intake appointment. And so it sort of speaks to the insidious nature of, of substance abuse, but also like, even if we have the best of intentions and wanna treat people, it's really hard to get people into treatment and retain them there. So the idea of drug courts is to blend the public safety and the public health approaches. Um, and so essentially what it does is because there's this threat of sanction, it compels people to stay in treatment um, for longer periods of time and to engage more. Now it's really a multidisciplinary approach. So you have a prosecutor there, there's a defense attorney there, there's court uh, coordinators, there's case managers, probation officers, law enforcement officers, treatment providers, and they're all working together in sort of a non-adversarial process, right? You know, when we think of the criminal justice system, we think of a prosecutor on one side, the defense attorney on the other side, they're arguing with each other, they're all trying to win. That's not the focus of a, of a specialty court and specifically of a drug court, right? It's this recognition that this person has behavioral health problems that if we treat them, like maybe they're not gonna have, continue to cycle through this system. Um, and sort of everybody's sort of on the same team and working collaboratively. Now, participation in drug courts is voluntary. You can't strong arm or, or force anybody into being in a drug court, but often the thing that makes people wanna be in drug court is that you have these charges that are being held over their head. So it's not coercive because it's not like you're making up charges, right? To, to get this person into drug court, but you're saying, look, these are the potential consequences of your actions and we're gonna give you a second chance. And if you sort of wanna avoid that, this is a program that we're gonna give you so that you can choose to do it. Um, some of the components of a drug court, they usually last for 12 to 18 months. Um, they will include random drug tests to make sure that people are, aren't using or are remaining abstinent. Um, they'll have status hearings in front of a judge. So sometimes when you go into the drug court, you'll actually see, you know, the judge is not dropping the hammer on people, right? The judge is providing encouragement. I mean, they're sanctioning when they need to, but a lot of times it's like a back and forth and, and the, um, you know, the, the defendants have an opportunity to sort of be heard and talk about their progress and, and all that type of stuff. Um, they have a, a large behavior modification uh, approach 
So the people are rewarded when they're doing really well and they're sanctioned when they're not doing so well. And what's important about the sanctions piece is it's not just you go immediately to jail if you don't comply, right? They're, they're sort of graduated sanctions. So they have things like, um, I wanna say they call it like the penalty box, right? Like, look, you're not doing so hot. So like, you're gonna have to go sit in the penalty box for the entirety of drug court this Wednesday, right? You get to see everybody come through. Like now you have to set aside your whole day. You're not going to jail, but you know, you're, we, we expect you to sit here for eight hours. Um, and it could be various other things like one day incarceration, two day incarceration, more status hearings, more check-ins with um, a probation officer, maybe more, um, you know, a curfew, things like that. Drug courts tend to employ case management or wraparound services, right? So it's not only that you get drug treatment, but you're also getting other treatment that we know helps prevent people from relapsing and recidivating. So, um, you know, Detective Bailey had mentioned um, housing is a huge problem, right? If somebody doesn't have stable housing, it's really hard for us to, to not see them ending up on our radar um, at some point, right? So might be opportunities for housing, opportunities for education, opportunities for um, job training, things to sort of help people get their lives back on track. And people graduate from drug court when they complete treatment, they satisfy all their supervision conditions, they complete whatever community service they might have to do, and all their fi financial obligations are met. So it's really encouraging taking responsibility. Um, and, you know, I, I've seen, I have a little video, I think, of um, maybe what a family drug court looks like. It's like a three-minute clip. I'll play it. If you can't hear the audio, I might not have shared my audio. And um, tell me if you can hear it, just like someone, uh, Alex, I can see you on the, on the screen. So just nod your head if you can hear this. No, okay. Um, well, I, we can maybe come back and play that later. I think I did not share my audio and my, um, and my uh, video, and that seems to be what the problem is. Um, but let's, let's go over a quick drug court vignette. So if you're thinking about somebody who maybe would benefit from a diversionary program like drug court, um, tell me what things are coming to mind for you about this type of indiv this individual who we're gonna review right now. So let's say Jill was arrested for possession of a controlled substance that was heroin. This is, his, this is her fifth arrest for this charge. She has a history of numerous heroin overdoses. She is homeless and she has no supports in the community. She's been enrolled in drug treatment on numerous occasions. She either skips her intake appointment or only attends a couple treatment sessions before relapsing and dropping out of treatment. Regarding criminal history, she's been arrested for robbery with a knife on several occasions. However, she admitted to officers that the robberies were to obtain drug money, and ultimately she pled out to lesser charges, preventing her from having any felonies on her record. So if you're thinking about somebody who might be successful in a diversion program, somebody in the, in the community, what things pop up for you that make you think, hey, this person maybe deserves a shot on a drug court? And what things are, are jumping out at you that jumping out at you that are saying, hey, like I don't think this person would be successful, and maybe we need to keep them in the regular system? I, I, I don't mind uh, getting that one. Um, when I look at this, um, Jill's case, right away, since she's been in the system so many times, she knows that our uh, justice system here in New Mexico is really weak and they're just going to continue to cut her, <laughs> let her go. Um, I think that hurts our diversion programs so much here because you have to have some sort of leverage on somebody 
And if I say, okay, well, I, I can take you and drop you off um, to get you into a program um, and I won't take you to jail. If, if somebody doesn't know the system, that might work because they're, they're scared of jail. But somebody that's been in the system and knows I'm going to go to jail and get ROR'd and I'm going to be out tomorrow, they're not going to want to go through that, um, you know, all the, the hassle of the other stuff. Um, so I think in this case, it wouldn't work. I'm looking for that first time person who I think might, I might be able to help, but somebody that's been in the system this much, they're not going to benefit from it because they're going to walk away from it. Um, and I, I think uh, Detective Padilla echoes your sentiments where he said, uh, get her out of Albuquerque, she'll be good. Um, and that is something I think that we hear a lot in New Mexico is sort of, look, we don't have enough teeth in our system sometimes. And we know what happens to people if they just get cut loose and, and they don't feel like there's really certainty of any type of sanction. Um, so Detective Savage, that's exactly what I think about is, okay, what offense is this, right? Is this somebody who's had a bunch of chances and is still having trouble? Um, maybe that's not the, the best person to be in a sort of a community-based program. There are some things that jump out. Go ahead, um, Alex. One of the things I would add too, I mean, obviously it seems like you can also look at this information and see an element of desperation and unreliability, probably because the underlying issues with the drug use is not treated. So I can think maybe higher level care, like residential, rather than something voluntary on an outpatient basis, because if the cognitions are never addressed or the cravings, um, it's just going to be a repeating cycle. So I would argue high level care. Yeah, so I, I think that's a good, and um, Detective Mira said, based on her history, she doesn't appear uh, amenable to treatment, right? And so that's something that we think about, right? This person's been in treatment before, doesn't go to her intake appointment or only goes to a couple groups. Now, I think one of the things Dr. Kuhl is pointing out, I think that's a really good point is, Maybe we need a little bit more information about what this treatment has looked like. Has she ever been inpatient before, right? Has she ever had to be at a place? So if you had a drug court, what you could say is, you know, we're going to give this person a shot in drug court. First thing you're doing is going to inpatient treatment. Um, but let's say it's a place that has the post plea model, right? Look, you plead to this and here's this sentence that we're going to impose if you don't comply with all of your conditions. Um, so there are some ways, you know, they don't always exclude people from drug court, um, even if they don't have a um, sort of a history of success in treatment, if they can identify, well, what has this person not gotten yet, right? So you can easily make an argument, this is not a person who should be in drug court. And in certain drug courts, I think automatically this person would be excluded. In other drug courts, they might say, well, we're willing to take a chance on this person. And you have to be aware that like, there's this legal sanction here. So like, if you don't do well in inpatient treatment, you're going right back there, um, or you're going, you know, to uh, to jail or to prison. But those are all the, like those are. I think you're you're identifying exactly the things that we think about with these diversionary programs. The sort of risk level, like what's the are they amenable? What's the type of, um, you know, what types of things haven't they had yet? Where like if we give them something, maybe it's going to make a, a difference. So those are, you know, all the ways that we sort of use our discretion to figure out well, like who who could this help and who should not be in the regular criminal justice. Um, another thing that sticks out to me is, you know, the, the, the violent charges, the robbery charges, right? Now, we all, we all know that criminal records don't always necessarily reflect exactly what happened, right? Sometimes they're too low, sometimes they're too high. This is someone who admitted to robbing somebody at knife point, but just pled out to lesser charges, right? Um, 
So the fact that she doesn't have any felonies on her record doesn't necessarily mean that we think this person is some, isn't somebody who could be violent in the community, particularly if they relapse. So that's another thing I often think about is, does this person's drug use lead to violent behavior, right? Sometimes it doesn't, but for some people it does. And those are people I tend to get more concerned about in a drug court program. The last thing I'll talk about quickly is conditional release. So this is usually reserved for individuals who are found not guilty by reason of insanity, or who are found in some states, they call it not criminally responsible. And so that, you know, this in itself is sort of the idea of therapeutic jurisprudence. Like we don't hold somebody criminally accountable if we know that what happened was caused by a mental health issue. So we'll send them to the hospital and this um, is NMBHI up in Las, should be NMBHI up in Las Vegas. Um, when we think of a conditional release program, we're thinking of when some, you know, how do we know if somebody's ready for a lesser level of care and sort of a step down from a hospital setting. And that's really what conditional release reflects as a step down from a hospital setting. Now, what happens is we'll send people out into the community and as the name suggests, it's a release that is subject to conditions. So often people are, they have a, a specific mental health monitor to make sure that they're doing things like remaining adherent to their psychiatric medications, that they're going to their psychotherapy appointments, they're not getting in trouble with the law, that they're staying abstinent from drugs and alcohol, um, and there's sort of graduated sanctions. So it's similar to that drug court model, like, hey, we're gonna give you a couple chances, but the more you sort of screw up, like we're gonna, you know, we start to transition you back to a higher level of care. So again, it's this sort of, it's somebody who originated in the criminal justice system, but is now sort of subject to the civil justice system because they're committed. Um, and we're using that commitment, that sort of indefinite commitment as a way to, um, to say like, hey, like the, the better you do, the more freedom we can give you. And specifically what we're concerned about is, are you gonna do, are you gonna, to prove to us that you're not sort of at risk for a relapse, right? Um, so the, the whole acknowledgement here is if mental health issues um, caused your, your criminal justice involvement to begin with, what are the things we have to watch out for to make sure that that's not gonna happen again? So things like relapse to substances or not going to treatment, like those would be major red flags so even though it's not a violation of the of the criminal law, like we know like where this road goes. And so we'll transition people to a higher level of, of treatment, whether that means they have to reside in a group home, they um, go to a partial hospital, or eventually they go back to some place like NMBHI. Now, conditional release has been shown to be pretty effective. It does reduce recidivism. Um, Oh, and, and I might have missed a slide about drug court effectiveness. So drug courts reduce recidivism by, you know, 10 to 25 percent. Um, people stay in drug treatment a lot longer. Um, if you compare them to people who either opted not to be on drug court or normal probationers, you're seeing um, a lot fewer positive drug screens, um, less relapse to, to drug and alcohol um, use. And so conditional releases, and they're also really um, cost effective. So I think on average, they save like maybe 12K per person who's in a drug court program. Conditional release is similarly effective. It reduces recidivism rates. Um, revocation rates can be kind of high, but that's sort of built into the model, right? Hey, like, as you need a greater level of care, we transition you to a greater level of care. And so the idea of a conditional release revocation is just you go back to the hospital, you go back to get a higher level of treatment. And all the things that you guys mentioned before, you know, planning for risk assessment, um, making sure that people have means in the community, so housing, financial planning, and making sure that they have treatment providers in the community. Those are the things that sort of tell us whether a, con a conditional release program is likely to be successful. So if we were go to go through a vignette here, I want you to think about whether or not 
if this person has been hospitalized for a long time, is this somebody who seems like they might be ready for a shot at the community? So let's say that Jack was arrested for first degree murder. At the time of the events, he believed he was possessed by Satan. And the only way to exercise himself of the devil was to carry out his wish, Satan's wishes and kill his elderly neighbor. He had been hospitalized since 2005. During his first five years of hospitalization, he was not adhering to treatment. He fought with his peers and with staff at the hospital, and he engaged in several suicide attempts. However, since 2010, he has been adhering to treatment. He recognizes that his medications help reduce his psychotic symptoms, and he's been a model patient. He has no history of drug or alcohol use, and he has family members who are very supportive of him in the community. He has been visiting group homes, and all of them think he would be a good fit. So when you're thinking about whether or not this guy would be a good fit for the community, what are the things that jump out to you that say, let's give him a chance for a, less, uh, a lower level of care? And what are the things that concern you public safety wise? Uh, Chase Bryson, uh, Portland Police. I think uh, that all looks good. I mean, it's been a long time that he's been uh, cooperating, but I would be curious what happened in 2010. Like, did he just all of a sudden gain insight or like, you know, like, or was there some catalyst to that? I think that could tell us something there. I think that's a great point, right? You know, sometimes people are in a hospital and they just sort of acquiesce to, well, I'm here and they're going to force me to do treatment anyway. So there's a question. I think you pulled up the exact right thing, right? Does this guy really have insight or because if he doesn't have insight, then we're, we're more concerned, like, look, absent the structure of the hospital, is this guy really going to take his meds? So that's one of the things, exactly one of the things I think about is what's somebody's level of insight and like what is making them adhere to treatment? Is it voluntary or is it because they happen to be in this particular setting? What are some other thoughts? I think you're really going to have to um, probe at some of those past delusions because typically when people do have those delusions, they tend to be absorbed and they tend to be agitated. So I would like to know, like when communicating with him, how, how often his thought gravitates back to that. Because likely when, when he's outside the structure of a hospital, it's, it's more of likely he could decompensate. That's a great point, right? To, you know, we know he's on medications, but do we know if his symptoms are completely gone? Does he, does he rec like, um, like um, Officer Bailey, or no, Officer, uh, Officer Bryson was mentioning, um, like, yeah, does this person really have insight? Do they understand? Like, maybe they realize like, hey, maybe some psychotic symptoms are gone. Like maybe this person was hearing voices and they don't hear voices anymore. Doesn't mean they don't still think that they could be possessed by the devil, right? So that's another great point. Um, Dr. Cool, I think you really want to know sort of what these symptoms look like. Um, what else? Is there anything else that's sort of jumping out at people or things that they might want to know about this person before they, they decide if this is a good um, candidate for community release? Not community release, but like a group home, right? Like still a structured setting, but maybe just not in an institution. So I can walk through a couple, um, a couple other things that jump out at me. No history of drug or alcohol use, right? So that's that's um, that's promising in terms of, you know, that that seems to be one less sort of relapse factor, right? You know, if somebody goes back on drugs and alcohol, maybe their mental health symptoms start to come back. Um, 
one of the things I'd really want to know and there's not information about is, hey, like, how is this person going to know to reach out for help in and of themselves, right? And, and so that sort of ties into insight, right? Like, well, how are you going to know if you start to get in a sticky situation? Um, how are you going to know if maybe you're starting to decompensate and you need to pay closer attention to taking your meds or having somebody help you with certain things? Um, there are a lot of people on a conditional release program who go back voluntarily, right? They say, look, like things are getting overwhelming. I just need to be in the hospital for a month so I can stabilize and then I'll go back out. So people don't necessarily go back to the hospital only on a revocation. They might go back voluntarily because they recognize they need a higher level of care. So th those are all questions that I would want to know from this individual is sort of, you know, how do you see things and how, how are you going to alert people so that we're not alerted to when something you know, nasty might happen. So I think these are all great questions, great things to be thinking about. And they're all things that, you know, I think we have to think about when you're, think, when you're considering whether community options are appropriate instead of an institution or a jail setting. Uh, go ahead, Dr. Cool. Just something to add to that. I think the safety plan is a really good idea. And on the second to last sentence, you said, has family members who are very supportive of him. I would like to know a little bit more about that. So he may convey that like, yeah, you know, my family's very supportive of me. I would like to get some collateral and kind of see how that dynamic is. So when he's stressed, does he reach out to the family member or does he tend to push them away or do they actually not answer his phone? So, although he may convey that information, I would like to know some evidence, converging evidence that that really is the case because that could be a good protective factor. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point, right? And it sometimes it sort of seems unfair, like, oh, like this person can get released because they have a good family and this person can't because they, and one of the things that I always think about is, I know it sort of seems unfair, but as part of us doing a risk assessment, right? Like, how are we gonna be confident that nothing is gonna, you know, that it's that public safety component, right? What makes somebody less of a risk to public safety? If they have a lot of social support, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be family members, right? It could be, look, I've got a ton of close friends. I have all these community providers that I used to work with and they're all still in contact with me. So, but it's that idea of like, do you have sort of protective factors there? Are there social supports? Do you have a good pro-social support network? Um, so with that, I wanna sort of talk a little bit about how you guys see this playing out in New Mexico, what seems to be working, what maybe has you frustrated. So, um, for any, or and it doesn't have to be New Mexico. If you're from Portland, if you're from somewhere else, maybe you can tell us a little about your um, uh, like diversionary type program. But for anybody who, does anybody have experience working with individuals who are in these programs or have been in these programs and sort of how has that panned out for you? Or has anybody made an arrest thinking, I want the person to get into this type of program? I'll and this is my experience um, in Akron, Ohio, when I was on internship, I provided some drug court groups as well as domestic violence anger management. And from my experience, there's always a little bit of like externalizing blame and resistance at first. Um, it was, a, I believe, a 24 week program, but like around like week 12, I, I start to see the turnaround and at least by self-report and by their case manager, there seems to be an improvement because they take some of the guidance and internalize lessons throughout treatment. But I think it's also very important to 
when you're working with these individuals, you have to be consistent because if you have favoritism or you let one person slide for not doing the homework, then some of the other individuals will. So I think accountability uh, is very important and let them know the, like the framework. Um, but generally I think it, it can work pretty well. I mean, obviously tell, it depends on the individual, but I think the base rate for recidivism is, I would argue is lower. Thank you for sharing that. Anybody else with any experience with these types of programs? And, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a formal diversion program. For example, if you're, you know, if you're a UNM officer, maybe there's a on-campus sort of program that people go to as opposed to a court program. Or, um, you know, as Detective Muir pointed out, you know, it'd be great to hear from people in Portland because I'm sure they have some different resources than Albuquerque does. And I was just going to say, um, Dr. Fairfax Colombo, um, I think it's definitely the way the pendulum is swinging this way now, right, to all these diversion programs and um, to these more treatment-focused programs, especially people that are in the judicial system. I just think that a lot of our resources haven't caught up to those ideas, and I think that's like the biggest issues that we're seeing that we can divert people to these programs but to to get them into the actual resources they need we don't have that backbone right like housing we keep bringing up and and that sort of thing so i think um i'm sure we're not the only ones that see this but i think that's like the biggest um issue that we're seeing like catching up to that to the ideas i think that's a great point and um you know, you can, it really speaks to the need for, to one, take a really holistic view of some of this stuff and sort of say like, look, and that's something I think I talked about last time was, you know, things that impact this group here impact this group here, right? So if we have poor mental health treatment in Albuquerque, it puts more strain on the police because they're encountering a lot more people who have mental health issues in the community. Um, and sort of uh, like all over the system, there's these interactions. And I remember sitting in on some of these, um, drug treatment groups when I was working at um, Treatment Research Institute. And some of them I was like, oh, like this is a great treatment program. I'm glad there's a drug court that sends people here. And some of them I was sitting in and I was like, oh my God, like how are these both a drug court program? And like, why do we not care that there's such discrepant levels of treatment here? And I think it's the same, you know, like you might not have, some places have a lot more resources for uh, homeless outreach than other places. Um, so those are all, I think, huge, huge factors in the success of a, of a diversion program is not only is there a willingness, you know, from the legal system, but do we have the community infrastructure to make that successful? Because it won't be successful unless you do have it. Um, and so getting everybody to collaborate and focus together can be kind of difficult. So I appreciate you sharing that. Um, and I 100% echo that sentiment. Um, so Dr. Cool said, yeah, so needing uh, good peer support, people with lived experience, needing really good case management services, figuring out how to get people attached into these types of resources. Um, and one of the things I am, I, I like that you mentioned the, the pendulum swinging, right? So I always get concerned, like a pendulum is supposed to go back and forth. And I always get concerned if it sort of starts to go more to one side and there's like less of that balance. And so I can think of some ways where putting everybody in, the, in a diversionary program would not be a great thing. 
Um, and sort of, you know, going back to what um, Detective Saavedra was saying is if everybody knows that they just immediately get diverted, there's not really a good impetus to change your behavior. One of the things that Dr. Cool was saying that I agree with is if you force people to be in treatment for, for particularly drug treatment for a while, and they, and they sort of start to pull things together, like they're just, their life just generally gets better. So they have this shift from sort of an extrinsic or an external motivator towards something that's more internal, like, well, like I didn't realize my life could be this good. And like, I wanna make sure that it perpetuates. Um, but when you sort of lose that, hey, like people do suffer consequences for doing some of this stuff that can go away. So I, I wanted to get your thought on, does therapeutic jurisprudence make sense? Can we overdo it? Um, and sort of who do you think is more, we talked a little bit about people who you think are, might be appropriate for this, but who, who's the ideal population who could benefit from something like a uh, diversionary approach?